This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, everyone. It's Dan Ambeter, and welcome back to the CardioNerds Cardiology Case Report Series, which is an ongoing series where we present high-quality educational case reports in a fun, engaging, and educational format. In this episode, we will feature a crucial case that highlights the intricacies of caring for patients with pulmonary embolism, brought to you by our colleagues from Texas Heart Institute. Stay with us. Audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Chelsea Amel Tuniboa. I am an intern in the CardioNurse Academy representing the House of Tossing. I am also a PGY-1 internal medicine resident at the Stony Brook University Hospital. I'm so glad you were able to tune in and I hope you have a wonderful time. Thanks, Chelsea. All right, and with that, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, CardioNurse. This is Amit Goyal. We are back for a CardioNurse case report from the very first time ever with friends from Texas Heart. Thrilled to welcome onto the show Dr. Isabel Balachandran and Dr. Diego Celli. Folks, welcome to the show. Tell us who you are. Hey, everyone. I'm Isabel Balachandran. I was born in the UK and spent my formative years in Canada. I spent my undergraduate training at Boston University and medical school at the University of Connecticut. I returned to Boston to complete my internal medicine residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And then I'm currently a third-year cardiology fellow at Texas Heart Institute. Next year, I plan to pursue a subspecialty fellowship in advanced heart failure and transplant medicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Um, and I guess in my free time, I enjoy skiing, hiking, and playing music. Hello, everyone. My name is Diego Celli. I was born and raised in Venezuela, where I completed my graduate training. However, in 2016, I decided to come to the United States and pursue a postdoctoral research fellowship in basic science at Northwestern University. I trained at the University of Miami, where I finalized my internal medicine residency before coming to Houston, the Texas Art Institute, to pursue general cardiology fellowship. I'm planning to pursue further training in interventional cardiology with a focus on peripheral interventions particularly below the knee interventions and pedal arch uh, revascularization. I'm a foodie and a forced traveler as my partner lives in New Orleans. And in my free time, I love to cook. Well, yeehaw. Amazing to be in Houston, Texas today. I squeezed into my beautiful Texas boots and I see Ahmed has is there as well with his spurs attached because we are about to learn some amazing cardiology from you, Diego and Isabel, and we're pumped. So I know there's a lot of oil stations uh, but we're not going to be getting a coffee at one of those and talking about cardiology. Take us to your favorite place so we can have a great chat about cardiology. So we're just in time for the Houston Rodeo. So let's go grab a bite there and chat about some fun cardiology cases. Count me in. I've never been to a rodeo before and who better to have that first experience with. So let's get right down to it. Who's our patient? This is a 42-year-old male with past medical history significant for Crohn's disease with multiple recent flares who came with acute chest pain at rest. He stated that prior to his presentation, 
He had a four-day-long history of abdominal pain that slowly but steadily progressed to substernal and non-radiating chest pain. It was associated with moderate shortness of breath. He reports that it's not associated with exertion, respiration, nausea, or vomiting. The patient denies any cough, sputum production, subjective fevers, sick contacts, and recent trials. So going through the history, his past medical history includes Crohn's disease with a jejunal, ileal, and colonic involvement. He has been complicated by failure of multiple biological agents. He had a colonic stricture, and it's now status with a partial resection, and he has overweight. Medications, only on home prednisone, 40 milligrams daily. Social history is non-contributory. Family history, mother with ulcerative colitis, brother with diabetes. The surgical history, it's remarkable for an ascending colon stricturoplasty, and he only has allergies to ciprofloxacin. So, Diego, with this wealth of uh, information and his new chief complaint, how do you kind of put this case together so far? Traditionally, chest pain's differential diagnosis is very broad. Usually, we follow a system-based approach and we can go over it. But for the sake of time, at this time, we had to rule out life-threatening conditions such as acute coronary syndrome, pericarditis, myocarditis, pulmonary embolism, GI issues like esophagitis or esophageal spasm, acute chest pain due to sickle cell, pneumothorax, or aortic dissection. But please, guys, leave the psychosomatic away from the beginning of this case, as this clinical diagnosis should be posed only after careful clinical and instrumental assessments, aimed to exclude any possible underlying cardiovascular factors. Yeah, Diego, that was beautiful. I totally agree. Chest pain provides such a broad differential diagnosis to begin with, and we will stay broad. But at the same time, we can also kind of hone into specifics to the patient's history. As you know, Crohn's disease itself from the GI tract can affect mouth to anus as well as be associated with other systemic syndromes. And he's also immunocompromised on chronic, fairly high doses of steroids. So immunosuppression and issues related to immunosuppression that affect the chest area are at play here. And so we are as broad as possible, especially given his specific factors, thinking things like zoster on the skin from his immunosuppression all the way down to every other tissue available. So his history itself lends itself to a very interesting diagnosis. How did you, well, tease this apart and maybe we can get some objective data to parse this out? I think at this point, a physical exam is key to help honing in on that differential. I can dive right in and talk about our physical exam in the emergency department. Yeah, what did he look like? So on vital signs, they were notable for an elevated heart rate, about 136 to 149 beats per minute. He was normotensive 104 to 127 over 59 to 75. And his O2 sats were 95% on room air. Physical exam was notable for an ill-appearing cachectic male. On cardiac exam, there was a loud P2 component, but otherwise no other murmurs, rubs, or gallops. On pulmonary exam, he was tachypneic using his accessory muscles. Otherwise, his lungs were clear to auscultation. His extremities had one plus bilateral pitting edema to his shins. So, Isabel, this is a really concerning physical exam. Just to highlight some of these things, just to bring them out, you know, you have somebody who's tachycardic, obviously a warning flag, and uh, blood pressure not that robust, even though they should be in a state of a sympathetic surge. Definitely clearly ill appearing. And then this tachypnea with clearness to auscultation is definitely a huge red flag. 
the kidney with clear lungs is always a very concerning sign that potentially something's involved in the pulmonary system and potentially the pulmonary vascular system, like pulmonary embolism. And then this bilateral pitting edema, so evidence of volume overload on the leg. So just really concerning picture with an acute presentation. So overall, very concerning physical exam. But you did mention that P2. What were you trying to get at with you listening to that? And could you give us some tips and tricks about how to figure out if somebody does have a loud P2? So when I think about the P2 component of second heart sounds, the second heart sound is usually single and has two components to it. The aortic valve closure, which happens first, and the pulmonic valve closure, which happens second. In our patient's case, we heard a loud second component, which was concerning for the pulmonic valve closure. And in my mind, I think about either uh, elevated pulmonary pressures, such as pulmonary hypertension, or an ASD. Yeah, thank you for going over that, Isabel. So far, we have a fairly young gentleman with a complicated Crohn's history on chronic immunosuppression coming in with chest pain, found to have a very alarming physical exam right at the get-go. So we need to move fast, get some more objective data to triage him quickly, labs, chest x-ray, EKG. Let's get to it. Okay, let's dive into the labs. Electrolytes were fairly normal, a bicarbonate of 20. B1 creatinine were in normal levels. We were thinking about an acidosis with the calculated anion gap was 10. So we were thinking about a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Renal function was normal, as well as the liver function. We found a mild leukocytosis at 13.1, as well as anemia. Platelets were normal, as well as the INR. Uh, but we were surprised to find a troponin of 2,500, uh, an elevated pro-BMP at 679, and uh, off-the-chart uh, d at 20. Lactic acid was 1.9, and elevated inflammatory markers like CRP. So taking a look at the chest x-ray, there was no significant dilation of the pulmonary trunk. There was mild pulmonary vascular congestion, but otherwise no other significant findings. In our case, the patient had an EKG on admission demonstrating sinus tachycardia, a rate of 145 beats per minute. There were normal axis and intervals. There were ST depressions in the lateral leads V5 and V6 and a QR pattern in V1. Additionally, there were ST elevations in AVR, as well as V1, concerning for a right-sided current of injury or global ischemia. Gosh, with, uh, if I got the call from the ED with this presentation and this data, I'd be running down. How did you put this together and what do you think is going on? Summarize these findings. What are you worried about? So with this information, the differential diagnosis has narrowed down. And uh, I think when we are called to AR, the most important thing is to rule out life-threatening conditions. So ACS, it's still a possibility, but are we suspecting a PE? So the way that uh, we approach PE, it's first, we need to see if this patient has risk factors. And the patient has two unorthodox risk factors. Um, this could be similar to those HIV patients that have an increased cardiovascular risk, but our ASCD score uh, doesn't capture these type of pathologies being on prednisone for a long time, or IVD with elevated thrombin, anti-thrombin complexes, prothrombin fragments, D-dimer levels, especially with active disease, uh, it plays an important role in their procoagulation profile. These factors lead to higher risk of thromboembolic events in IVD patients compared to normal population. We place this patient at moderate risk with an OATS ratio of 2 to 9. 
And once that we have identified these risk factors, we say, do we have symptoms that might make us suspect a PE? And yes, he has. He has chest pain. He has shortness of breath. They have come up with this PERC score. It's a decision aid to reliably distinguish low risk from very low risk PE patients. If one criteria that in our case is tachycardia is present, we are unable to rule out a PE. If the PERC score is low, the clinical probability of a PE is low, less than 15%. We can move and think about different diagnoses. Yeah, I'll just say that's exactly right, Diego. You know, uh, earlier we had said that the patient was tachycardic and was really dachypnic, but had clear lungs. And I had mentioned pulmonary embolism before as possibility, but another thing could be RV infarction, you know, with right-sided heart failure or acute, and this patient certainly could have had it. So having this EKG pointing us away from RV infarct is very, very helpful. And now, as you're saying, we're building the case for pulmonary embolism. So how did you clinch the diagnosis or what was your next step in terms of imaging for this patient? That's exactly right. So we have risk factors, we have symptoms. So the second step would be estimated the risk of PE. So we could, we have multiple models, including the well score and the Geneva or D-dimer even in the labs. So the well score in this particular patient could be either 4.5 or 7.5 that would classify him as moderate or high risk, given his clinical symptoms, tachycardia, and PE being a likely diagnosis or equally likely diagnosis. The Geneva score was also high in this particular patient, and we have a positive D-dimer. So we have to commit to get imaging. So we proceeded to get a CTA, but we can also get a VQ scan. And the reason is higher accuracy, alternative diagnoses, and speed of testing. On our CTPE, it demonstrated extensive bilateral pulmonary emboli involving the distal aspects of the right and left, lobar, segmental, and subsegmental branches of the pulmonary arteries. There is also evidence of right heart strain, which is defined as either an increased RV to LV ratio. In our case, there is an RV to LV ratio of 1.75 to 1. Well, Isabel, the diagnosis is made. Diego set us up with a high pretest probability. The CTPE protocol diagnoses a PE that is not at all subtle if you look at the images. And for the listeners, definitely take a look at the website. You'll be able to log in and see all of the images related to this case. The next major step here in our treatment algorithm will be to determine the risk assessment for this patient. And we'll put together our hemodynamics as well as the impact on the right ventricle. We already have elevated cardiac biomarkers, but an echocardiogram, a window into the heart may be very helpful here. Isabel, do we have the echo? Absolutely, Amith. And just like you're saying, in terms of risk stratification for PE, Evidence of RV dysfunction is exceedingly important to further risk stratify according to any of the guidelines. So let's take a look at the echo. Our first view is our parasternal long axis view where there was moderate dilation of the right ventricle and severely reduced function. That was obvious to see. There were no other valvular abnormalities. On the apical four chamber, there was firstly evidence of RV free wall hypokinesis with preservation of the apical contractility. This is also known as the McConnell sign. Once again, the RV was dilated, and when measured, the RV to LV ratio was at least 1 to 1.2. Further, there was bowing of the interventricular septum from right to left, suggesting that there is, in fact, RV pressure overload. Finally, using M-mode and Doppler measurements, the TAPSI or tricuspid annular 
systolic excursion was reduced to 16 millimeters, normal being greater than 17, and an S prime of 0.09 meters per second, normal being greater than 0.1 meters per second. We were also provided a contrast-based image, which is a useful tool to delineate the endocardial borders. RV systolic dysfunction and dilation was present and confirmed again. The LVEF was calculated using these images and was preserved at greater than 60%. This really supports the previously mentioned findings. Finally, the estimated PA systolic pressure using the TR gradient and RA pressure was approximately 50 to 55 millimeters of mercury. There is mild tricuspid regurgitation. So now that we have seen the echo, it's time for re-stratification. And for this particular um, uh, task, we use a PASI score that determines the risk of mortality and severity of complications. In our patient, it was 102 points, uh, placing at intermediate risk, given that he's a less than 60-year-old male with tachycardia and an SVP less than 100. So Diego, just as you mentioned, one method of risk stratification or helping with that is a tool using the PESI score. And this really comes important to the guidelines. The AHA, the ACCP, and EAC have variable definitions of PE in which both clinical and lab findings are used. Each major guideline highlights the importance of the evaluation of RV dysfunction and elevated biomarkers, both troponin and BNP. To summarize, the AHA defines submassive or now recently intermediate risk PE with either RV dysfunction or elevated biomarkers, specifically to troponin levels. The ACCP similarly defines in intermediate risk PE with either RV dysfunction or elevated biomarkers, though this time with both elevated BNP or pro-BNP or troponin levels. Finally, the ESC subdivides intermediate high and intermediate low risk groups based on the PESI or simplified PESI score and if there are elevated troponin levels. As previously mentioned, in 2019, the AHA published a consensus statement revising the nomenclature of PE, and now the terminology stands as either high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. So let, maybe let's take a pause for a second. I think, you know, this is a really, really critical moment. I think the care for a patient with pulmonary embolism is so challenging, right? Because so much hinges on this risk stratification. You have patients that could potentially be treated as an outpatient and then patients who have a short-term mortality in, in the high double digits, right? So in this setting, how did you coordinate that decision-making? Was there a, a PE response team involved in trying to figure out, you know, how much to escalate this patient's care beyond anticoagulation? That's a great question, Amit. We were certainly concerned about the severity of this patient's illness at this point. Although at the Texas Heart Institute, we don't have a formal PERT team, which you mentioned, or a pulmonary embolism response team, we do have a group of multidisciplinary individuals who come together and discuss this, similar to a PERT team, but it's unofficial. So going into that a little bit, just to put a plug in for PERT teams, uh, it's a multidisciplinary group of clinicians who can rapidly assess and provide treatments for acute PE. 
They can exercise and coordinate a full range of medical, endovascular, or even surgical therapies, and more importantly, provide adequate follow-up for these patients. In our case, we knew that this patient would need escalation of care. This was not someone who we would consider uh, an appropriate outpatient candidate for treatment, and in this case, directed this to our cardiology attendings. Yeah, that was perfect. You know, I mean, I think in this situation, bringing together a group of people that are skilled in this area is so important because, again, not only is there such a variability in presentation, the complexity of the different menu options of how to manage it are so wide. And, you know, it's like no one size fits all. You really have to personalize the care. So bringing everyone together, uh, what did you do next, Diego? So we discussed several options, and uh, I think it's a good time to review them. So for systemic thrombolysis, usually used for high-risk PE, it works by rapidly acting on acute thrombus, thereby reducing pulmonary pressure and RV dysfunction, along with improving hemodynamics. This has been shown to be superior to anticoagulation alone in high-risk and pulmonary embolism. However, what about its use in intermediate risk PE? And I think we have to discuss the PFIL trial. It was the largest randomized controlled trial of systemic thrombolysis in intermediate risk PE. Thrombolytic treatment with tenecteplase reduced the composite outcome of all-cause mortality at seven days and hemodynamic decompensation versus anticoagulation with heparin. This came at the expense of increased risk of major bleeding. Major bleeding in this trial was 6.3 in the tenecteplase arm versus 1.2 in the heparin alone, and 2% had hemorrhagic stroke compared to 0.2. So given this concern, it was postulated that a lower dose of TPA instead of 100 milligrams, maybe 50 milligrams, might achieve better safety and effective profile. So the MOPED-3 trial in 2013 evaluated the effect of low-dose thrombolysis, 50% standard, on outcomes in patients with intermediate risk PE. It found that low-dose TPA may reduce the bleeding risk while retaining some efficacy. It was associated with reduced incidence of pulmonary hypertension. However, major criticism was that few patients indeed had RV dysfunction or enlargement. In terms of catheter-directed therapies, they include a broad range of therapies, including pharmacomechanical therapy, catheter-directed thrombolysis, and mechanical embolectomy. Recent meta-analysis by Pei and Alam in 2019 compared catheter-directed thrombolysis to systemic anticoagulation alone and showed lower rates of in-hospital 30-day and 90-day mortality with no differences in major or minor bleeding or blood transfusions. Recently, the Canary trial in 2022 was a randomized clinical trial assessing the effect of catheter-directed therapy with heparin versus systemic anticoagulation alone in intermediate to high-risk PE. Overall, the three-month RV to LV ratio was not significantly lower with catheter-directed therapy versus anticoagulation alone. However, catheter-directed therapy had a lower rate of all-cause mortality or an elevated RV to LV ratio. Notably, this trial was underpowered and had to be stopped prematurely due to COVID-19. So one widely studied catheter-based technique is ultrasound-facilitated catheter-directed fibrinolysis, or ECOS, which combines local fibrinolysis with ultrasound-mediated thrombectomy. It's minimally invasive and a procedure that is quick to perform. 
and our institution, the lytic agent of choice is TPA. Ultrasound waves accelerate clot dissolution by unwinding and thinning fibrin strands to expose more drug receptor sites. And the acoustic streaming devices drives the drug deeper to the clot for safe dissolution. Notable trials have studied the efficacy of ecotherapy, including the Seattle 2 trial, the Optolase trial, and the Sunset trial. The first two were positive studies. So going into them a little bit, the Seattle 2 trial found a reduction in the mean RV and LV ratio and mean PA systolic pressure at 48 hours post-thrombolysis. Although major bleeding occurred in about 10% of patients, there was no intracranial hemorrhage. The Optolase trial aimed to determine the optimal dose of TPA and found that a lower dose delivered over a shorter duration of time resulted in improved RV function and reduced clot burden compared to baseline or higher doses of TPA. In contrast, the Sunset trial failed to demonstrate better outcomes or safety profiles between catheter-directed therapy and systemic anticoagulation alone, which is why this technique and other catheter-directed therapies remain controversial. It's worth considering that some patients are ineligible to receive clinics, even if it's at reduced dose. So suction thrombectomy is an expanding field with multiple devices being developed. One of them, penumbra, it's an 8 to 12 inch size. It's considered a small bore suction thrombectomy. It's a stainless steel with a separator with a lining device for blood loss protection. The Extract PE trial, it was a prospective single arm that conferred the FDA approval for pulmonary embolism and had similar reduction in RV-LD ration and low major adverse events in intermediate PE risk. The Inari system, it's a 16, 20, and 24 French large bore vascular axis with a flow saver collection syringe. It has a 40 micron filter that you can give the blood back. We can also escalate to Angiovac that it's not currently approved for PE, but you can use it to remove materials from the right heart. It's a veno-veno bypass circuit with a 22 French or 18 French inflow cannula with a 16 to 20 reperfusion cannula. It requires special setup and perfusion is at bedside. They also have the Alphabac that no circuit is needed. It's a reloadable handle for controlled aspiration. It's a transparent waste bag with 15 or 30 cc per uh, injection and optimal setting to filter blood for return. And stay tuned for many new devices that will be coming up on the market soon. So Diego, the two of us just went over a lot of material. So I'm going to summarize for us where we're thinking in terms of restratification of our management. So when considering the management of acute PE, for lower risk or low risk PE, initiation of systemic anticoagulation and discharge home may be appropriate. While for high risk PE, thrombolysis or surgical thromboembolectomy and admission to the ICU may be necessary. However, intermediate risk PE still remains controversial in terms of an ideal management strategy. When considering acute inpatient management of intermediate risk PE, we approach it systematically. As a caveat, this is an individualized decision and institution and resource specific. Firstly, we think, does this patient warrant systemic anticoagulation, either low molecular weight or systemic heparin and later direct oral anticoagulant? 
Next, are we prepared to manage hemodynamic instability and possible RV failure? It's important to be at a center that can manage cardiogenic shock with inotropes, vasopressors, and if needed, ECMO. Next, we look at the size and thrombotic burden of PE. At this point, you can decide whether the patient is a candidate for lytics, thrombectomy, or both. If there are no contraindication to lytics and not a significant degree of thrombus burden, consider ECOS alone or ultrasound-guided thrombolysis. If there is some evidence of hemodynamic compromise, then consider both ECOS and mechanical thrombectomy. Finally, if there is a contraindication to lytics and the clot burden is high, aspiration devices alone can be tried. However, if these techniques have failed or are contraindicated, there are paradoxical emboli or clot in transit, surgical embolectomy should be considered. Given the complexity of these decisions, a PERT team, again, may be helpful in triage and management of these patients. Okay, so that was a beautiful overview of a very complex and challenging clinical scenario. And the reality of the situation is, like you said, that the best route of action for patients with intermediate risk PE remains controversial and, and really just unclear. You know, while we have a lot of tools at our disposal, the data to really guide the best approach and a framework is very limited. So we're all looking forward to uh, trial data that will be coming out soon. But let's take it back to our patient. How did you guys decide to take care of this gentleman's PE? So when you started to ECOS catheter, once again, as a summary, this is an intermediate risk PE. The patient doesn't have any contraindications to lytics. No large RVOT or main PA thrombus. We had a high confidence of effective TPA delivery. It's an easy and quick procedure and theoretically less distal embolization compared to mechanical thrombectomy. But we also had the possibility to escalate therapy to mechanical thrombectomy or full support. So regarding hemodynamics, uh, the right atrial pressure was 11 over 9 with a right ventricular pressure of 61 over 4. PA pressure 59 over 27 with a mean of 38. A wedge pressure of 23. A cardiac output calculated at 5.16 with an index of 2.35. Pulmonary vascular resistance was 2.9 watts units, and the TPG was 15 millimeters of mercury. So taking this data all together, it seems like uh, the patient had pulmonary hypertension. The current guidelines say that a new pulmonary artery pressure above 20 millimeters of mercury gives you the diagnosis. With a wedge pressure above 15 and a PBR of more than 2, it's a combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. We were kind of thrown off by the elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and it makes us think that maybe the patient has some sort of diastolic dysfunction. We know by the echo, he doesn't have any valvular heart disease, and he doesn't have heart failure. Yeah, Diego, that's a really good point. Um, you know, the wedge pressure, we wouldn't have anticipated it to be elevated in this patient with no history of left-sided heart failure or left-sided valvulopathy, but, you know, just... In terms of how a hemodynamically significant pulmonary embolism can cause compromise in a patient, right? You have the direct effect on the RV, the thin chamber ventricle that has a hard time keeping up with acute rise in the afterload from the mechanical obstruction of a pulmonary embolism. Remember that RV, its own output will go down, right? It's causing decrease in systemic cardiac output. But as it dilates to compensate for that, 
you have almost a picture of intraventricular dependence with a leftward shift of the intraventricular septum, which can actually impinge on LV filling and thereby potentially elevate left-sided filling pressures as well. So it's almost like a double whammy with a significant PE. You can get essentially biventricular dysfunction causing compromise. And I think that might be what we're seeing here. That's a great point. So following with the procedure, this is a minimally invasive, uh, small war venous access, usually done through the right IJ. One needs to place two seven-trench sheets with an ultrasound-guided axis. A shorn is loaded to each PA and exchanged over a long J-wire. And then you can bring the echoes to each pulmonary artery. The protocol varies a lot, and it depends on institutional comfort, patient selection, risk of bleeding, and even availability of ancillary support. In our case, two milligrams of TPA bolus was administered through each catheter. It was continued at a constant infusion of one milligram per hour per catheter for 12 hours. There is data comparing the difference dosing and timing, but total dosing can be as low as 8 milligrams TPA with 300 units of heparin per hour per catheter. And at the end, you have to remove the ECOS catheter after 12 hours or whatever timing you have decided to keep it at bedside. And like you were saying, Diego, in this case, we favored a 12-hour duration. But you were mentioning before, right, that this uh, can be variable timing. Is that right? That's exactly what I said. I said that it depends on the institution, it depends on the protocol, it depends on uh, ancillary support, it depends on, on patient selection. What I found was interesting was that there's been newer data that suggests that we can even do ECOS therapy for as minimal as four hours. So in this particular patient, the chest pain result, the vital signs improved, the troponin normalized. Uh, interesting, the venous ultrasound revealed bilateral DVTs that the patient refused to undergo thrombectomy. He was switched from an unfractionated heparin to apixaban. Chest pain result, vital signs improved, and troponin normalized. So yeah, Diego, we did get a post-op uh, echo at 72 hours, and we were pleased to find that there was normalization of the RV size and function. The RV to LV ratio improved to 0.6 to 1. The TAPSI was 19, and S-prime was 0.1 meters per second. Further, the estimated PA pressures decreased to an estimated 25 to 30 millimeters mercury. So great news all around. Yeah, that's a remarkable, uh, at least an RV response uh, for this gentleman. Just terrific. Yes, this was a really satisfying case, and especially to care for someone who was so critically ill and to see them get better in the acute setting. Now, we are totally out of the woods, and there's a spectrum of long-term complications that we want to watch for after an acute PE, including intermediate-risk PE called post-PE syndrome. These include things like limitations in functional capacity, cardiopulmonary dysfunction, and overall a decreased quality of life. There is a condition called chronic thromboembolic pulmonary disease, or CTAF for short, which is characterized by a persistent pulmonary vasoconstriction and arterial obstruction. This spectrum of disease and the pathophysiology behind it are likely due to a maladaptive vascular remodeling from residual thrombus or arteriopathy, which results in increased pulmonary vascular resistance and possible further RV dysfunction. It's really important in this case for close follow-up with uh, either a primary care physician, cardiologist, or a hematologist. 
Now, the evidence of thrombolytics or catheter-based therapy in the long run, it's still controversial with its long-term complications. But there have been several small studies that have reported the long-term benefits, including the top coat trial and the Moffitt trial, which have improved functional outcomes and quality of life and possible decreased risk of the test in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Isabel and Dago. That was a masterclass case in pulmonary embolism. You took us from soup to nuts and really showed us the Texas heart way. So thank you so much for being here. We loved this visit. It's been so fun having us on and we're excited to have some Texas representation here. It was an honor to be here. Congratulations on this phenomenal educational platform. And now we want to welcome our expert clinician, Dr. Maboub Alam, interventional cardiologist who specializes in pulmonary embolism to offer additional insight to our case. We want to thank him so much for all of his input and insight into this case and helping us navigate through management of intermediate risk PE. Thank you, Isabel and Diego, for inviting me to be an expert on this interesting case about submissive pulmonary embolism. I'd also like to thank Daniel Ambrinder and Hamid Goyal from CardioNerds bringing Texas Heart Institute on this forum. My name is Mabel Wallam. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine and Biola College of Medicine and Department of Medicine. I'm also an Associate Program Director for Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program at Baylor. My practice of international cardiology is based at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, which is home to world-renowned Texas Heart Institute. This gives me a unique opportunity to interact with and work with fellows from Texas Heart Institute, as well as fellows from Baylor College of Medicine. I am interested in management of massive and submassive pulmonary embolism because I feel this is a rapidly evolving field with lots of potentials to make a difference in clinical outcomes of these patients. I see pulmonary embolism management with cath lab and by cardiologists as similar to how management of ST elevation MI was evolving in the 90s, that we were devising new trials, testing new protocols, whether thrombolytics or anticoagulation, and later on evolution towards device therapies, including balloons and stents. We are starting to see same kind of rapid evolution in management of pulmonary embolism with percutaneous devices, as well as with different protocols for use of thrombolytics when indicated. But I joined Baylor College of Medicine as faculty in 2012. At that time, the data on various devices was practically minimal. There were hardly a few short, non-randomized clinical studies that had looked at use of ultrasound-facilitated catheter-directed thrombolysis or ECOS, for example. And the data on aspirational thrombectomy or mechanical thrombectomy for massive and submassive pulmonary embolism is very rare. However, now we see more and more data coming out. There are several trials that are looking at or have looked at the use of thrombolytics in massive and submassive pulmonary embolism with catheter-directed delivery or ultrasound-facilitated catheter-directed delivery, which is in other terms called ECOS, E-K-O-S. This mode of delivery for thrombolytics not only reduces the duration of thrombolytic therapy, it also reduces the dose of thrombolytic therapy significantly. 
compared to systemic use of thrombolytics. We have seen significant reduction in the risk of life-threatening major hemorrhagic complications from use of systemic thrombolytics but with the evolution and with more streamlined use of catheter-directed thrombolytics. In this patient, who is a 42-year-old gentleman with chronic systemic disease presenting with clinical signs and symptoms concerning poor polyembolism with signs of hemodynamic compromise as evidenced by sinus tachycardia, loud second heart sound with loud P2 component, as well as echocardiographic evidence of RV strain and CT evidence of high thrombus burden with RV strain. So this patient has at least some passive polyembolism criteria because he's still able to maintain a good blood pressure. So this is an ideal patient where early and rapid intervention can improve patient's clinical outcome. This is one patient where systemic anticoagulation alone may not be ideal based on clinical guidelines as well. The decision to pursue one or other form of therapy for these patients like whether it's going to be catheter-directed thrombolytics or whether it's going to be ultrasound facilitated catheter-directed thrombolytics or whether it is going to be an aspiration or mechanical thrombectomy, for example, using larger bore venous devices from an RE retriever or penumbra can be rapidly made if there is a pulmonary embolism response team or PERT available. While we don't have a PERT call schedule at St. Luke's, we do have a group of dedicated and interested physicians from various specialties, including critical care, including pulmonology, including interventional cardiology and radiology, who can come together and then discuss what be the best approach for these patients. If the thrombus burden is high and patient is relatively stable from hemodynamic standpoint with early signs of RV compromise like this patient, we may be able to buy some time in this patient to cath lab and initiate one of the treatments. I prefer using cathode-directed thrombolytics as my initial strategy because I can put in two right IJ seven French sheets very quickly and we can float a swan in each PA and rapidly exchange with catheters and initiate TPA for these patients. This process is very easy for our cath lab staff and it's no different for them than putting in right IJ central venous sheets or right heart catheterization, for example. If we decide we need to go with larger board devices, that can be also done. But this initial treatment is also more generalizable because it can be readily available in smaller centers that are in the periphery where we may not have larger bore aspiration catheters, for example, for various reasons, including cost as number one and as well as comfort level for the staff deal with larger bore devices. So what I see is ECOS or catheter-directed thrombolytics are going to be used more in the periphery and in referral centers, but larger bore devices might still gravitate towards major tertiary care referral centers where we have birds, where we have vascular teams, where we have interventional cardiologists, and as well as comfort dealing with larger bore devices and their related complications. In this patient, Dr. Isabel Balachandrian and Dr. Diego Celli did a great job presenting the approach. And honestly, I would not have treated this patient any differently. I would have gone with 
echoes here. And if I don't see an improvement in hemodynamics, including peer pressure, including RV to LV ratio on echocardiogram, the next after the treatment, then I would pursue further aspiration thrombectomy if there is still a large thrombosport. I also do not always bring these patients back to cath lab the next day unless there is a need and I'm able to get right heart numbers. I'm able to get mixed venous sat from using the existing ECOS catheters at bedside. And if there is improvement after the protocol is done, whether it's six hours or 12 hours we use, I then decide whether I need to use aspiration devices or not. An area for future that I'm interested to see more is longer-term outcomes of these patients where we are intervening to escalate their recovery from this massive and submatic pulmonary embolism by clinical trials. At this point, as you know, and as discussed by Isabel and Diego, we do have several clinical trials and have looked at shorter-term outcomes and shorter-term follow-up, including trials from Seattle, error calls for examples for ECOS, and more recently, the flame and flash trials for aspiration thrombectomy. We do see shorter-term reduction in PE-related mortality. Will it translate into longer-term improvement and reduction in, for example, incidence of CTAP or post-PE syndrome is not well-defined. And the number of patients and the follow-up still is not robust. This would be a question that can be answered by use of larger scale registry data or incorporation of these patients into one of the registries at national level, like we have NCDRs, various registries. But this is exciting and there is more and more we can do for these patients. And I think this is going to keep getting better. I like to thank you for inviting me for this commentary. And I would also like to wish all the best for next stage of fellowship to Isabel. And I hope to see Diego continue to be interested in intervention and hopefully work with him more in the cat lab. Thank you. And thank you, Daniel and Brinder and Amit Koyal for inviting me for this commentary. Thank <laughs> you.